0: You are listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, so I'll start in verse 1. Genesis 29, just such a fun, crazy chapter. Verse 1, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and as he looked he saw a well in a field and behold three flo- flocks of sheep lying beside it um, when all the flo- oh, uh, out it for out of the well the flocks were watered the stone on the well's mouth was large and when all the flocks were gathered there the shepherds plural would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well when they were done while he was still speaking with them, verse 9, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's, uh, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he wept aloud. <laughs> and Jacob told Rachel that he was his father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone bone and flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should should you serve, therefore, serve, uh, serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, uh, it's better that I give her to you than, than I should give her to se- any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served uh, seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Don't ever say that <laughs> to your father-in-law. Ever. Ever. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went in to her. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban another seven years. That's our text. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, God it's 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 truth it's reality it's rawness i i I thank you god even as later on in the law as we get into well as we read in exodus how we how the law even says you can't marry um two sisters i thank you that this that's not read back into the story this really happened and though it's like a a black eye in in um in the book of genesis we see your redemption through it god And so I pray that we would see it even through our own mistakes, our own mishaps, our own deception, or being tricked, or being really just maybe even falling on difficult times or something, that we'd see your hand of redemption through it. God, you are so good at sanctifying us. You are so good at making us and turning us into your image and more into the image that we were created in. And I pray even still this morning that you would have your way in us, that you would work in us. Holy Spirit, I need your help. I want to communicate your truth and I want to communicate it correctly and rightly. But I also know that I only could speak to people's ears and I can say words. Only you can change hearts and change lives and speak to people's hearts. God, would you do that this morning? We love you and we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what does it look like for God to get a hold of a lifetime? Not... A life, some of us think of life um, as a moment, as maybe the moment we're living in right now, that God might have a hold of my life. But what does it look like when God gets a hold of a lifetime, when he sees the whole span of your life, because God can do that, because he's the whole span of your life, and he grabs a hold of your entire lifespan, your entire life. This is what it looks like, and this is what we, what's been unfolding for us in Genesis chapters 28 and 29 through the life of Jacob. In chapter 28, what we saw was that God had gripped Jacob's life. God had got a hold of Jacob's life. He had pursued Jacob. The grace of God had pursued him, had found him, and had gripped him. Last week we had, we we looked at that story where Jacob lays his head on a rock and he goes to sleep and he has these dreams and God promises to bless him and to give him all of these wonderful things. But up to that point in Genesis chapter 28, up to that point, Jacob has done nothing to merit nothing to deserve the grace of God. Actually, up to this point, Jacob appears to be a completely godless man. We have no cause to think of Jacob as a godly or spiritual individual. He's impetuous, he's manipulative, he's cold-hearted, he's self-centered, he cheated his birthright a birthright from his brother and he stole the blessing from his father, his blind, bedridden father. But something happened when Jacob grabbed the blessing, cheated, dressed up like his brother, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, dressed up like his brother, stole the blessing, and he ran. Something happened when Jacob ran off with that blessing. And what we see unfold for in the, the rest of his life, is that it's not that the, that Jacob has the blessing, that Jacob stole the blessing. Rather, the blessing has Jacob. Frederick Beekner, if you've um, ever read any of his books, he's a a wonderful author. And he wrote a book on the life of Jacob. And he wrote it from a, in a first-person narrative. It's a great book. And this is how he puts it. Frederick Buechner puts, puts this episode in Jacob from Jacob's perspective. This is how he puts it. When the camel you're riding runs wild, nothing will stop it. You cling to its neck. You wrench at its beard and long lip. You cry into its soft ear for mercy. You threaten vengeance. Either you hurl yourself to death from its pitching back, or you ride out its madness to the end. See, it was not I who ran off with my Father's blessing. It was my Father's blessing that ran off with me. Often, since then, I have cried for mercy with sand in my teeth. The blessing will take me where it will take me. It is beautiful and it is appalling. It races through the barren hills to an end of its own. I think Frederick Buechner beautifully gets it right here. It's not that the blessing, Jacob stole the blessing. He thinks he goes in, he dresses up like his brother, he takes it, I got the blessing, and he runs away. No, no, no. Buechner had it right. The blessing now has Jacob. The blessing has gripped Jacob's life, and like a wild doggie, all that Jacob could do is hold on for dear life, and it will take him wherever God desires him to go. It is both beautiful and it's appalling. And what happens next in the life of Jacob? Some call the process that God has us on. Some call it trials. Others call it being in the refiner's fire. But the Bible calls it Sanctification. What happens next in Jacob's life, when God gets a hold of Jacob's life, is this process of sanctification. It's this process where God will grab onto a life, he'll grip a life, and then he'll take it through the barren hills to an end of God's own. God knows what he's doing in our life. God knows exactly when he grips a life by grace, he grabs a hold of a life, whether it's a life that had hit rock bottom or the peak of your success, and you have this epiphany of God. Wherever it is that God has broken into your life and he grabs a hold of our lives, he takes it to an end that nobody knows but God himself. And this is what Jacob is doing. This is why Jacob is like along for the ride. God has gripped his life and God is taking him through to an end that only God knows. So what I want to do, and this text is a very, very um, obscure, it's such a fun text of the Bible, but it's so obscure. It's really hard to teach. Like, I just want to like, make fun of Jacob in it. That's all I really want to do. I'm like, oh my God, Jacob, this. But how do you teach it? So this is how I want to do it. It's going to be a little different this morning. I want to look at um, uh, two scenes, two scenes that Jacob sees, okay? Two things that Jacob sees in in these scenes. Um, And then I want to learn lessons of sanctification through those, through those scenes. So the first one is Rachel at the well, okay? He sees Rachel at the well. He's like, wow, this girl is beautiful, gorgeous. He sees Rachel at the well, but then he sees Leah at the wedding. He's like, O-M-G. <laughs> like he goes to bed thinking, you know, you guys read the story. So he wakes up, he sees, oh, he sees Rachel at the well. He's, he's smitten, he's, he's, he's almost infatuated with her beauty. And then he wakes up with, behold, like the, the biggest understatement in the Bible. Behold, it was Leah. <laughs> so, the first scene. Rachel at the well. Jacob was given instructions when he was leaving home. When he was running, partly for his life, fleeing for his life, because his brother, the hunter, the, that hairy, furry, red man, um, Esau, wanted to kill him. He was a hunter, so he knew how to do that kind of thing. Um, he was running for his life, but the other reason why he was running is when his dad sent him off, he was like, I want you to go find a wife, and I don't want you to marry anyone from around here. I want you to go actually go find a wife, Genesis 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise and go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your, fa- your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful. So Jacob now has these instructions to go to, this, to, go to find Laban, marry someone from Laban's house. Laban is your uncle. Marry someone from his house. As Jacob was on his way there, he has the dream, as we talked about last week, From the dream to this point, it's been about a month. This journey has taken about a month. And he comes across a well. And three flocks of sheep are around this this well. And there's a huge like manhole cover, this huge rock that covers up this well. And the reason why they had this rock that covered up this well was um, they didn't want anything falling into this well and contaminating this well. But they also didn't want dirt and debris and sand to blow into this well and cover it completely up so they had this giant rock over it was so big that it took multiple shepherds to move this stone once all the shepherds gathered around it they'd all look around they go okay we can move this now so they would move this stone out of the way so Jacob goes there and he sees these shepherds. And he's like, "Hey, how you guys doing? What are you guys doing? What, what, aren't you? Why aren't you feeding your sheep?" We're like, "Well, we're waiting for all the shepherds to get here, and then when all, all the shepherds get here, we'll move the stone away. We'll all, we'll all drink." He's like, "Okay, fair enough." So um, and so he 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 knows he's close to where Laban's house is. So he goes, "Hey, do you guys know who Laban is?" They're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, we know Laban." Well, is it well with Laban? I'm like, "Oh yeah, it's well. It's really well." Because look at his his daughter. And, and so all the shepherds must know about Rachel, like how drop dead gorgeous she is. There was like, there's probably like, they talked about her, like she's a shepherdess that's like super hot and like she's the girl. She's like, oh, it's, it's well with Laban's house. Look at that. And it was like, and so the camera turns, um, Jacob turns, it's like slow motion. She's walking and she's walking up with her little like lambs and sheep and like <laughs> cute things. Her name actually means you, like like a female lamb, like a cute cute lamb. Leah means cow, but that's a whole different thing. It, I know, it's horrible. Anyway, so Leah's, Leah's or Rachel, sorry, is walking up, with, and, and Rachel, uh, uh, Jacob locks eyes with, with, with her, and is like, it's just smitten with her. Absolutely gorgeous. Now, how do we know that he's smitten with How do we know that he's absolutely at that first sight in love with her beauty? Because he does something completely stupid. He does something completely awkward. So she, when she walks up with all her like animals, he has all. It says that normally all the sh- sh- the shepherds like move the stone for some reason. Okay, if you're reading, if you read Beekner's uh, book on this, he's like because um, first person narrative. He's like, and what happened? Once I saw her beauty, what happened next? I can't explain. I ripped off my shirt. Like that's. I think that would probably happen. So he just. goes rah, and he looks at the stone. He's like. Bah! and he like moves this giant stone by himself. He's just not like, "Guys, chip in like by himself." Now, this was a huge rock. It, it would probably take him probably like 8 minutes uh, to move this thing. So he's like, it's not like "rah off." It's like "rah rah rah." And he's just trying to move this giant stone and he finally moves it out of the way and he stands up and he's like sweat is dripping from his face. And he looks over at her and he grabs her sheep and he pulls him into the well and he feeds them and then he runs over to her and then he kisses her. Like why? I don't know. Caesar, overcome with beauty, kisses her, and, he, and then he weeps aloud. <laughs> who does this? It goes from, and I love these two sentences. When I read them, I love them. Every time I read them, I'm just like, this is, these are the best two sentences. Like He just he goes there, he throws the rock over, he grabs the lamb, kisses the girl, and he weeps out loud, just cries. And Rachel's like, who is this man? She's like, but, you know, and I like him. Like, he's, he's a really great whatever guy. Like, he's weird, and he's artistic, and he's emotional, and I like that. Um, so he's, and what's funny, like, um, do you guys know, do um, you guys know people like this that are just completely erratic? Uh, Jason Stevens, our worship guy, um, one day he walked in, and he was like, because we always make fun of him but it's more not making it fun, it's just true. Um, that, that he's just this emote, like he comes in one day, like I wrote a song, it's, yeah, here it is. And then like an hour later, he's just, uh. like what's wrong, like everything. Like, so one day he walks in, he goes, I found me in the Bible. And he found you in the Bible. I'm like hoping it wasn't like Jesus or something. I'm like, okay, we got a problem, we got to talk. And I found me in the Bible and it's like life of Jacob. I'm like, oh yeah, that's you. And he reads this little section and goes that's totally me just rock and kissing and crying all like within a couple seconds that's totally me and I'm like you're absolutely right that's you but brother it gets better his life changes okay so I just want you to know it gets better So Rachel is watching all this happen she is excited that this man has come she runs over to Laban and tells her dad what happens This whole episode is, is supposed to remind us of how abraham's servant found rebecca i think pastor Tark taught on this when abraham's servant was sent to find a bride for isaac and he came to a well and a lot of people think this is the exact same well and he goes up to the well and as he approaches the well he asks he says oh god god of my father isaac bless me today would you make my trip successful please use me and then he gets there and he sees beautiful rebecca Jacob's mom. He sees beautiful Rebecca. This is before they're married. He sees beautiful Rebecca, and he's like, "Ooh, okay." So he tests her character a little bit. Okay, Lord, if she if she f- gives me water, but then also draws water for my, my livestock, then I'll know this is the per-, and she does that. And he's like, "Thank you, God." Like praises God. Now you're supposed to r- think about this. You're supposed to draw your mind to this. But here, when the servant prayed, "O oh, Lord, grant me success today," Jacob you're supposed to notice that Jacob does not pray. He does not call on God's promise to be with him, just like the chapter before where God said, I'll be with He doesn't walk up to the well and go, God, you said you'd be with me. Be with me now. As this beautiful girl walks up, he doesn't do any of that. Where is God? Does God ever show up? Actually, God doesn't ever show up in this entire story. God is involved. But what happens now This transition begins to happen in Genesis where before, where where God is moving through signs and wonders and God is speaking to Abraham and showing up to Abraham and showing up to Isaac and doing all these things, showing up to Noah. God is very apparent, working through his seen hand. Here from this point in Genesis, it kind of turns. And now you see God working through providence and his unseen work. And this will go all the way through the rest of Genesis to where it culminates and ends in the life of Joseph when Joseph will stand before his brothers and say this, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God has been working in my life and in your life this whole time, and no one saw it. Even through when I was in prison, when I was sold into slavery, when I was falsely accused, he's been working under the, in the, under the surface the whole entire time, and you didn't see it, but I saw it, and God meant it for good. This is where this starts right here. Because the reason why the the, the, the narrator brings up the rock that that took several men to move, but he was able to move it by himself, and this, and this kissing and the weeping. The narrator is trying to show us, in this emotional response, that Jacob did not specifically say that God was there, but Jacob saw, in these circumstances, the guiding hand of God. A lot of commentators say, and I would agree with them, the reason, why, 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 why explain, how can you explain him just crying after the kiss? My arm. Or what? why is he crying? <laughs> he's, he's, it, and, I, and I would agree. They're, they're start, he's starting to see God's hand. This is all from God. This, I mean, this is completely insane. God's hand is guiding. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily pray it. I don't deserve it. God's hand is here. He starts to see it. He starts to realize it, that God is with me. He said he would be with me, and he is with me. I said, God, if you're with me, you will be my God. God is with me. I didn't deserve it subtly through and we're going to see through heartbreak through deception through him getting what he wants and him not getting what he wants god is working and the the name the word god is never mentioned you guys have to lock that into our, we have, to, we have to get this. We can't just get this intellectually. We, we got to get this deep, deep down into our soul. When we cannot see the apparent hand of God does not mean that God is not working. That God is not working, and we might get glimpses of it. Some of us are led to tears at times when we just weep and cry like God was working this whole time through the worst possible way. He was working the entire time, and I just saw a glimpse of it right here. That's the first scene. The second scene isn't so romantic. It says that Jacob loves Rachel. This is uh, the Bible's equivalent to love at first sight, like an infatuation almost. After staying with and working for, uh, for Laban for a month, Laban realizes that this guy that, that he has, his nephew, is actually a really great worker. He brings Jacob in and says, Jacob, I want to offer you a full-time job. You're doing a great job here. With the, you're my kinsman. I mean, like, well, I'm not going to let you work for nothing. You're not, like, a slave. I want to pay you. How can I pay you? And it, there was no question in his mind. There's no question at all. It was simple. He didn't have to think about it. Rachel, I will work for Rachel. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now what does this mean that Leah's eyes were weak? Either it means, um, and no one, everyone has a different interpretation of this. it either means that Leah's eyes were dull, meaning not her eyes, but her appearance was dull. It was not, she didn't pop with beauty like her older or younger sister did. She had a, f- a less physical quality than her sister. Or it could mean that there's something physically wrong with her eyes. She had like either bulgy eyes or cross-eyed, lazy, something wrong with her eyes. Or it could mean that she had beautiful eyes, but that's it. Her eyes were the only thing going for her. She had great eyes, but nothing else. No one really knows what this means, but what we do know is this. The narrator contrasts her eyes with the beauty of Rachel. So what we know is that what's used to describe Leah is contrast to the beauty of her sister so she was not as beautiful as stunning as gorgeous as her sister rachel we get a we get a little more it says um he loved rachel and he said i will serve you seven years for your younger daughter rachel laban said and notice how laban doesn't like say yes or no he says kind of pretty vague Well, it's better that I give you to her than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Like, was that a yes or a no? I mean, like, what are you saying? but, But Jacob just hears what he wants to hear. Oh, we're on. We're good. Okay, seven years. No big deal. And then it says, he served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That's how smitten Jacob was with Rachel. He worked seven years of wages for her, which, by the way, in the currency of the time, which been a, w- would have been an enormous price for a bride. But it only seemed like a few days because he was that in love with Rachel. And then the very next verse. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Okay, first off, we covered this before. Never say this to a would-be father-in-law, ever. <laughs> in Hebrew, it's even more graphic. It's pretty subtle in English. In, in Hebrew, it's, it's abrupt, basically the equivalent of saying, can we do this marriage thing? I really want to have sex with your daughter. It wasn't like, I want to live happily ever after. I want to make her a home. I want to take care of her. Like, I want to have sex with your daughter. And this is exactly what he said to Laban. And Laban throws him a feast. He's like, all right, I understand that. Seven years, I get that. I'm going to throw you a feast. Now, what the Hebrew word here is actually a drinking banquet. He throws them a party, okay? A drinking banquet. Now, this drinking banquet leading into their wedding night would be a week-long uh, party where they would feast, they would eat, they would drink, and then what Laban would do, he would walk his, his, um, his daughter down the aisle into the wedding tent. Now, brides then were heavily veiled. I did a wedding this last weekend, this weekend. And the bride, when she came down the aisle, she didn't have a veil on. She came down smiling, like almost like skipping down the aisle. And I get the best seat in the house. I get to stand there, and the husband's right here, and he gets to see her, and everybody gets to watch his reaction. He's like, "Oh my gosh!" And then she's like, "Yeah, here I come!" And, (laughs) and it's just so it's adorable to see. And then he comes up, and I, who gives this woman to be this man's wife? And dad like gives her away, and husband swoops in. They're just so cute standing there. But she's not traditionally; she's not veiled. In this tradition, she would have been heavily veiled, meaning you, you couldn't tell who she was. And she would come in, and the dad would walk her down the, the aisle inside to the wedding tent. The wedding tent would have been, it would have been at night. They would have been partying all day, sometimes multiple days, drinking, eating, partying. So Jacob was probably, just like everyone else, a little bit intoxicated. Goes into the wedding tent where there was no lights, only candlelight, and everybody looks good in candlelight. So dad brings her in, he doesn't know, he sleeps with her, and he wakes up in the most, probably the most understated verse in the entire Bible, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. (laughs) And I don't know if it was like a scream, I don't know if it was like he wakes up, he's like, ah, ah, like he screams, and then like camera pans out, like all the, like everyone hears the ah, and then Laban wakes up, he's like, ah, he, he just found out. If it was like that, or if it was like he rolled over and he just hung his head in complete disappointment. But whatever it is, like I said, it's really, for us to read this, it's very funny. It's like, very funny, okay? Just be honest. But it's completely, if you think about it, it's completely sad. A woman that you've loved for seven years. You had no thought in your mind that you would marry anyone but her. And you wake up after having the best night of your life to to the wrong person. I believe Timothy Keller said it very well in his book, Prodigal Gods, if you've ever read that book, when he said that in the morning, it's always Leah. What does this mean? It means that no matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, it's always Leah. Never. Never. Rachel, I think most of us know what that feels like. We wake up, we, we have this dream. I'm not talking about sexually either. I'm talking about things that we put our hope in. Think whatever it is, we put our hope in it, and when we get it, we wake up and behold, it was Leah. And I think that that verse, one commentator writes this: the words "Behold, it was Leah" are are the very embodiment of anticlimax, the very embodiment of anticlimax. In this moment, a miniature, I love this, a miniature of man's disillusion experienced from Eden onwards. What Derek Kidner is saying is that from the fruit in the garden, whatever fruit Adam and Eve ate, that fruit was, oh, it's going to be glorious, and they bit it, and then when they woke up, it was Leah. That's what he's saying. On and on and on and on, until here, it's the exact embodiment of that. And you, and you wake up, and behold, it was Leah. And from then till now, no matter what your hopes are, your hopes for marriage, your hopes for love, no matter if your hopes are in a career or a project. And I want you to listen to this. I know, I know that those of us that have been in church for a while, we're like, I know. I know I'm not supposed to put my hope in those things. I know. Yeah, I, enough to, with the sermon, I know. But we, we don't. I don't think we know. We put our hope in so many things, so many stupid things and we get them finally after trying and weeping and crying and like acting like God's not even in it. And we finally get it. And we're like, oh, it was Leah. The whole time. Like I thought it was going to be Rachel. I thought it was going to be this gorgeous, beautiful thing. And I woke up and it wasn't what I thought. We do this in ministry. We do this in work. We do this in family. We do this with people that you think a woman can save us or a man can save us. We do this all the time. We put our hope in Rachel, but we always wake up with Leah. We think that a man or a woman will save us, a job will save us, a promotion, a house, a child. And I think this is all a part of sanctification. I think God allows all of this to sanctify us. God, in his, in his wisdom and in his grace, because see, your life isn't like just this moment. It's, he sees your whole entire lifetime. And he, he knows, okay, I could, there, there's some things I can work out in this part of their life. And they will think that they're going to bed with Rachel, but they're going to wake up with Leah. And I'm going to do this to sanctify them. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to allow it to happen. I'm not going to make it happen. I'm gonna, this part. I'm going to show them. That their hope can only be found in me. In God's grace, God will allow our worlds to crumble in his hands. In God's grace, please hear this. God will allow our worlds to crumble in his hands, holding us all the while to show us that our hope is in the wrong thing. I think C.S. Lewis captured this. I've only shared long quotes from C.S. Lewis, and so I won't even apologize for that. If you've not read Mere Christianity, it's your fault at this point. I tell you to read it every week. But because I know that you still haven't, I will read this quote. From his chapter in Hope. Most people, if 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 they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we fall in love or first think of some foreign country or take some up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or, or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There, there was something we grasped at in the that in the first moment of longing, which fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. But the Christian says, Creatures are not, bo- are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I, am made, I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that these longings that we have for love, for place, for self are things that are pointing us to something even greater than all of those things. There's something that we want and we think, okay, it's found in sex and we get that and it's not found there. We think it's found in security or a wife or a job or we think it's found there. Like if I just had that and we get it, and it's like, it wasn't that. And his logic, his beautiful logic is that if you are meant for something, and you can't find it in this world and it's still there you must have been created for something else something other what he's getting to when he says it's found in god a marriage a woman a man a job a project a thing whatever it is will never will always evade us a vacation a promotion we'll get it and I'll slip it's like wait I thought once I had that. And if you don't get this, not just intellectually, but if you don't get this really deep down, what's so great for me and relieving for me as a pastor is this. The grip of God's grace will show it to you. It might take 50 years. God will show it to you. It might take you getting everything you want over and over and over again and realizing it's not it, but God will bring you there. It might be not getting anything you want over and over and over again. And God will bring you there. That's how good the grace of God is. So Jacob goes to Laban. Jacob goes to Laban and he says, What is this that you have done to me? Well, Laban, what did you what do you what did you do to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Hello. I know them apart. You gave me Leah. Why have you deceived me? For the first time, Jacob is the object of deception. And with his protest to Laban, Jacob unwittingly condemns himself. What does Laban say? Laban says this. Well, son, around here, we honor the firstborn. Zing. I had to honor my firstborn. See, Jacob was able to exchange the younger for the older, whereas Laban reversed the trick and exchanged the older for the younger. And so, Jacob asks, why did you deceive me? Laban's perfectly natural reference to his the elder's right has the effect of touching this guilty nerve in Jacob. And he got it. We as the readers are to interpret such irony as the work of a divine plan. Jacob's past has caught up with him. And it's almost poetic justice. The deceiver deceived, deprived by darkness of the sense of sight, just as his father was in his blindness. And how did Jacob know? How was the only test that Jacob knew it was, it was Rachel? By touch. Misleading touch. How is Isaac deceived? By touch. Jacob deceived his father with a meal and wine, and Jacob was deceived by Rachel's father with a meal and wine. Jacob dressed up like his older brother, and Leah dressed up like her younger sister. In the Midrash, the Jewish commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, the rabbis inserted a conversation into the story. And this is how it goes. When Jacob awoke and saw Leah next to him, he complained to her, Why did you deceive me, daughter of a deceiver? All night I was calling you Rachel, and you answered me? And you, she retorted, your father called you Esau, and you answered. Why did you deceive him? Now, how are we to read this story? Okay? Now, if this, this is the... Gr- Again, this is such a great story, but how are we to read it? I could sit up here and go with this. Hey, everyone, listen, because I have you right now, right? I could be like, you reap what you sow. (laughs) You lie, you're done. Like, it's going to come back at you the same way, and we're all, we would all fear. And then I would go, let's worship, and everybody would be like, God, help me. (laughs) Everybody would. Because we know if that was the moral of the story, we'd be done for. We're like, wait, I do that all the time is it you reap what you sow you get what you deserve see Jacob didn't really get what he deserved though he got everything God promised him he got he'll get Rachel in 7 days they don't have a huge family they don't have land and blessing did he really get what he deserved cuz he got everything that God had promised him by grace this is the grace of God, and I do not understand it at times. I don't get the grace of God. I said that last week. I'll say it again this week. I don't understand it. it just, it's so mind-blowing. I feel even horrible teaching as a pastor going, oh, my God, I'm just telling everyone, do what you want, and God's going to bless you. That's not what I'm saying, but it's almost I feel like that's what I'm saying. But it's not what I'm saying, just so you know. The grace of God is insane. Jacob dresses like his older brother to steal the blessing. Leah dresses like her younger sister to steal a husband. In the end, Jacob gets the blessing, or the blessing gets Jacob. And Leah gets the husband and gives birth to Judah, which will come Jesus. See, the only way that I can really wrap my mind around it is this. And this is is the storyline of Scripture as it weaves through all the way to Jesus. Jesus dressed up like us. He clothed himself in humanity. Not to steal a blessing, not to steal a wedding, but to give a blessing. To make a place for us at the wedding feast of the Lamb. To bring us in as the bride of Christ. This story of Jacob is a story of a great reversal. That's the point. There's a reversal here. And on that hinge, the reversal is how the whole Bible hinges. Jesus takes our place, our place and we get His. He takes our place in sin, our place in depravity, our place in, in brokenness, and we get His blessing and honor and, and, and sanctification and holiness and promises and the presence of God forevermore. We get all that. The whole Bible hinges on this. That's what the gospel is. So, how do you read the story of Jacob? When you were to read this at home, when you're teaching this to your children, how do you read the story of Jacob? What lessons do we gather? Jacob's life, remember, has been gripped by the grace of God. That's how we read it. We read it by grace. You're like, wait, wait, grace? I understand he gets all this stuff, but he got tricked. He was a victim. He fell in love and had worked and got the wrong girl. How is that grace? See, when, we, when the, the grace of God grips our life, you and I do not control the change that we go through. God does. Jacob's not in control. See how Jacob thought he was in control? I'll, steal, I'll take the birthright from my brother. I'll steal the blessing from my father. I'm in control. I have it all. But Jacob's not in control anymore. As Buechner said, he's riding this wild camel wherever it will take him. We don't control how God works in our lives. He works in you. The Bible says that he works in us to will and to do according to his purpose, and he will complete the work that he's began in us. See, there's a lot more change that needs to take place in Jacob's life than he thinks. And God will use even things like this to sanctify him. There's a lot more change that needs to take place in our lives than we think. So you, you and I have this tendency to think, well, I have to tackle this, this, this problem, this thing in my life. And I need to go to God to do it. So we're going, God, I, I have this addiction. I have this habit. I have this like, character flaw. And God's like, oh, you do? Well, you know what? I'm kind of in the business of complete regeneration, you see. I'm not like, um, I'll take your, like, broken, like, your lies and go, oh, I'm going to deal with your lies. He's like, I'm, I'm into the, the, the whole redemption of your entire person. So we think, I, you know, I need, Lord, I need to get over this relationship. And God's like, actually, you need a, a complete redemption of your entire sexuality. Like, whoa, I wasn't, I didn't ask for that. I just wanted this relationship. And God's like, that's not how I do that. I rewire everything. Everything. So the way you see women, the way you see men, the way you see yourself, I want to change all that. Like, no, but I was just like, I need healing. I'm in, I'm in the complete healing. We think we just need to deal with this character flaw, like lying. God, I need, I need help. I, I lie. I deceive. But God's in the renewal of our entire character, every character flaw we have. And not just not lying, but doing compassion. We think we just need to go over this addiction. But God is into a complete reorientation of the way we treat every substance. Not just alcohol. Not just drugs. I want you to see food differently. And wine. I want you to see everything differently. See, this is what God does. He doesn't just go, God, I have a thing, I have this problem drinking. He's like, you have a problem with with the way you see the entire world. I'm going to rewire that whole thing. It's going to take like 38 years just to deal with this one thing. But we're going to get there. This is what God does. Jacob thinks he could just exchange his inordinate love for a birthright and a blessing with an inordinate love for a woman. And God's like, nope. Got to stop some dead in his tracks. In the morning, Leah. And it's God's grace doing all that. God is sanctifying Jacob. See, sanctification doesn't happen outside of a fallen world. Sometimes we think, when God makes us more like him, it's always on this retreat like I leave on a retreat or, 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 or I go to like yoga or, you know, like I go do something out there and it's just, I'm quiet, I'm by the ocean and, and I have my Bible, my journal and like a cup of coffee and it's like, that's where God sanctifies me. Actually, God sanctifies you at work when you have a deadline and you can't make it and you're like, that, that, that's, that's where God sanctifies you. God sanctifies you in your cubicle, in your home, places you least expect it. God, that's where God is sanctifying you. God is sanctifying you through every small decision and every big decision. God is at work in your boring moments, your worst moments, your best moments. God sometimes uses failure in our lives to draw us to depend on him. You know why God does this? Sanctification, we sometimes think sanctification is about making me awesome. Like God, when you sanctify me, I will be super Christian. And I will be super awesome. It's not about you. Sanctification is about God turning you into a key player in the story of redemption of the whole world. God's like, I'm going to take you. I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to place you into my unfolding story of how I redeemed all of San Francisco, how I redeemed all of the entire universe. And you're a part of that story. That's why the process of sanctification is happening in your life. That's why. Not to make you awesome. Not to make you awesome for a spouse. Like, God sanctify me so I get to marry up like 10 notches on a spouse. That's That's not why God's sanctifying you. God is sanctifying you because you're going you're to play a role in something way bigger than yourself. Why is God sanctifying Jacob? Because his name will be Israel and his sons will be the tribe of, tribe of Israel. And one of his sons, Judah, will come King Jesus. It's way bigger than you and I think. And what we have to do is we have to just release our lives in the hands of God's in the hands of God. We have to, comp- even every, every mishap, every brokenness, not just like the good, but the bad, like release all of it in God's hands. And I know that's just so like Christian to say that. But you know what that means. I think, I, I think you do. I think you know exactly what that means for you right now. So let's spend some time responding to God. And let's not use the excuse, I've heard this before. Let's not to use the excuse, I'm above that, I'm beyond that. I have did that last week. Right now. Let's respond. Thank you, God, for your word, your promises to us. I pray that we would get this really great reversal and deep down into our hearts, deep down in our soul. Like the, we deserve, we deserve so much wrath because of our deception and lies and cheating and whoring and all these things that we do God but you took our penalty I thank you God that you have you have as we're, this story is just so so freeing and fun to go through you have Jacob's life it's in your hands and he sees it sometimes it evades him other times but you have it and I know, Lord, you have people's, you have this, this congregation, you have their lives, you have our lives, Lord. I pray we'd see it, we'd recognize it, we, we would repent, you would change. I, we would not stop your work in us. If you are bringing us to this new way of seeing sexuality, or this new way of seeing righteousness, or new way of seeing food and drugs and drink, a, a, a different way, God, let that work be done in us. So I pray that you would, you would free us today to worship. That we would understand this deep down in our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.